WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. I used to have fish when I was really young, but something I never knew was if they were male or female, or basically how my fish identified. Today we're talking about the genetics in fish with Lexi Nodalski. Hi Lexi, thanks for joining us today. May you please tell us more about yourself and your research? Hi, yeah, I'm so happy to be here today. So I'm a junior in the Lyman Briggs College and I'm studying biology and genomics and molecular genetics with a minor in bioethics. My research involves work in the MSU Electric Fish Lab. And what we do there is study genetic sex determination methods in African electric fish. So the fish family that we study is called myrids. There's a lot of different species of fish within there that I might refer to, but they're all generally like weakly electric fish. So they aren't going to shock you, but they communicate through electrical signals. So they're pretty cool fish. Hi, Lexi. Thanks for coming on the show. Let's talk a little bit more about these electric fish. How exactly are the fish using the electricity to communicate? Is the electricity traveling through the water to the other fish, or do the fish touch each other and then share the electricity via that path? So the fish have these electric organs sort of in their tail fin that allows them to communicate through electrical impulses through the water, as you said. But what's actually really interesting about these fish, getting back to the genetic sex determination methods bit, is that in order to procreate, they have to be touching each other because myrids are actually the only fish species, actually the only species, not just the only fish species, that their sperm do not have flagella on them. So they are able to move on their own. They're non-modal. So like most sperm in other species, you always see the little like symbol of them being able to swim sort of like a tadpole. In this species, they're not able to. So in order to reproduce, more myrids do have to be touching and sperm have to be transmitted like more physically almost. That makes a lot of sense to me. Now, focusing on the genetics, how do you actually analyze these fish genetically? Do you take samples of their blood or maybe their scales? And what are you specifically looking for? So there's a couple different ways that we're able to get samples from these fish. The easiest one that we've been able to do is take snippets from the edge of their fins. So it's not harmful for the fish. And from that, we're able to break down their DNA and get the samples that we need. So what we're looking for specifically is this one gene that's called AMHR2. There's two copies of this gene. So AMHR2A is present in almost all of the more myrid fish species, and we know that this is a sex determination gene. But what is not necessarily present in every single fish species is the duplication of this gene, which is called AMHR2B. So AMHR2B, when present in a fish, is able to tell us that that fish is a male, sort of like the Y chromosome in humans. And for some reason, over half of the more myrid family has this AMHR2B gene duplication present in its males, but some of the species do not have this present even in their males in the species. So we aren't fully sure where this gene was lost in the genealogy of this fish family, but that's really what we're looking for is which species have this 2B duplication 
and which ones don't so that we can figure out their genealogy a bit more. It's great that researchers like yourself have been able to identify these genes that allow people to determine what the sex of the fish is going to be. It's been a while since we've talked about it on the show, but can you give our audience a reminder about what genes are and how they translate into physical appearances? So the genes are almost like an instructional manual of your body telling all of your cells what to do and what to be and what to look like, depending on all of these different factors in your body. So in my research, the genes that I'm studying tell the fish which sex they're going to be, whether it's male or female. But there's a lot of other things that are a lot more easily observable from genes other than the sex of the fish, such as the color of the scales or the size of the fish or any other features on its body, such as its scales or its fin size or whether it has a long pointed nose or not. But what's actually kind of interesting about these fish and why my research involving the genes is so important is that a lot of times it is very difficult to tell from the outside perspective which fish are males and females. In a few of these species, there's a singular notch on it where you can kind of tell that if it's a male, it'll have this notch in its back. But in a lot of the other species, it doesn't have this marking at all. So there's things like color and size that are a lot more easy to observe that come from your genes. But in this case, my study of the sex genes is really important because we aren't able to tell that from the outside. So it makes it a lot more difficult to identify the sex of a fish, especially for breeding purposes, like the other research that happens in the other half of my lab, they're doing breeding studies, but I'm involved more in the genetic side. So that's a big part of what we're doing is that we need to be able to tell which fish are males or females or not, and we can't be killing them and dissecting them to see whether they have testes on the inside or not. So we need to find out if they're male or female and keep them alive so that we're able to breed them. Now, something that stood out to me was that you said that your lab is breeding the fish. Are these fish endangered, or is there a specific reason why you're breeding them? And also, whenever you all are observing these fish in the water, are you taking measurements of the electricity that they're producing to communicate? So, these fish are not necessarily endangered, but we are breeding them for other research that's happening in our lab that I'm not necessarily involved with, but they're studying hormonal changes in the fish and behavioral patterns associated with these hormonal changes when they go to breed. So during these breeding trials, we do measure the electrical discharges from the fish. Those are called EODs with a certain machine that we're able to put into the water, and it can pick up exactly what those electrical discharges look like on a sonogram almost. And from there, we're able to tell when there's changes in those EODs and if it's more likely that there's going to be a successful breeding event or not. So we're almost able to tell changes in the hormonal behavior in the fish just through their communication patterns. It's pretty cool that you're able to actually measure those currents that are being released by the fish whenever they're communicating. I would have to imagine it's probably something like a direct current similar to different currents that are running through our houses right now. Once these eggs have been fertilized by the sperm, how do the fish mature their eggs? Are they kept inside the female fish or do they lay them like other fish do similarly? So as I mentioned, these fish have not been successfully bred in captivity yet. We have gotten 
one breeding event to be successful in that they did complete the breeding activity. However, no eggs were produced from that event, unfortunately. So it's a bit hard to tell based on the captive species that we have in our... From nature, I do believe that these fish lay their eggs as other fish species do. And we have gotten some of those eggs before from outside sources, but we incubate them in the lab so that they're able to grow to maturity in a more safe manner and they aren't put in harm's way in the tank. So we hand feed them with a tube until they're old enough. And then we start giving them the worms like the other fish once they are out of the mini stage almost, once they're not babies anymore. And then once they're old enough, they get to join the bigger tanks with the adult fish. Oh, wow. I guess it didn't really process for me whenever you said that they haven't been observed for the whole reproduction cycle. Do you happen to know how long they live for? Because I'm kind of worried. What if you run out of fish? So in the wild, they tend to live two to three years, but most of the fish that we have in the lab have actually been there. Some of them are almost seven years old. So we've more than doubled their life expectancy just from being in the lab. And I also partly think it's because I really like working with the fish. So I tend to give them some extra snacks. And I think those little extra worms or two that I give them whenever I feed them is what's extending their life for so long. Yeah, it's actually really interesting how the life expectancy has more than doubled in captivity compared to the wild. We actually have one tank that we just call the retirement tank. That's about 80 to 90 really old fish that really shouldn't be living anymore. We don't know how they're able to survive for that long, but it's actually really surprising. So it's like a nursing home for these fish. That's actually really funny. (laughs) Yeah, it basically is a nursing home for the fish. They're almost like, I don't want to say they're going there to wait to die, but it's more like they get to live out their final days in a fun-filled tank with their friends. It's probably just due to the fact that they're not exposed to the same predators that they would normally be exposed to out in nature. But that that's good that they're at least living out their lives to the full expectancy, and even past it. Exactly, yeah. They don't have any predators in our tanks, and we're also mostly able to protect them from parasites as well. But whenever we get new shipments of fish from different places, that is always something we have to worry about. We did have an infestation of parasites in a couple fish that we got a little while ago. We ended up having to euthanize them. So it's not something that we can completely avoid, even in a lab setting, especially when, as I mentioned, these fish are African electric fish. So it's not like we can just go find them in the Red Cedar River over here. (laughs) We have to import them. It's surprising to me that they're actually able to make it all the way from where they're being captured and brought to your laboratory without too many issues. Let's talk about those fin clips that you were taking earlier when it comes to analyzing the DNA of these fish. Once you've extracted the DNA from these fin clips, how do you actually identify the gene that you're interested in studying? That's exactly what I do. Once we get these fin clips, We do what's called a DNA extraction, where you essentially break down the fin until it's just a clump of cells. And then from there, we do something that's called a PCR, which is basically heating up all of those cells with some extra DNA in there 
a bunch of different times, heating them up, cooling them down, heating them up, cooling them down, and making a bunch of copies of the DNA that was in that fin. So from there, we do something that's called a gel, where we put all of that extra DNA that we've made into this almost jello-like substance. And from there, we get these lighted bands that come back that are different sizes. And we know how long the AMHR2A and 2B genes that we're looking for are. So we just need to see if those lighted bands come back are the same size as those genes. And from there, we're able to tell if that fish has those genes or not. And since you already have these samples from the fish, are you all doing any other genetic experiments that may not even be related to sex determination of the fish? Right now, we're just doing the experiments regarding sex determination. But as I mentioned, there's a lot of different more myriad species that we're studying. So it's taken a long time to be able to find these genes in different species because when you're going to do that PCR reaction, on the genes of different fish, you need something that's called a primer, which is a little piece of the DNA where it can latch onto that sample in order to create all of those gene copies. And the primers have to be different for every single species. There isn't a universal primer, unfortunately, that works for all of them. So a lot of my research has been spent trying to figure out which primers will work for each of these different species in order to get back those results about the genes presence in these different fish. It's really great that you get to have this kind of experience doing this research. When it comes to the caretaking of these fish, how does it differ from, for example, fish that live here in the local mid-Michigan area? Do they require different temperatures and pH levels? And how well do you recreate the environment that they come from? So we do our best of creating a tropical environment here at MSU for these fish. All of the fish in our lab are from Gabon, which is a small country in Africa, and they're from a few different river systems in Gabon. So in order to simulate this environment, we have to keep our fish rooms pretty hot. They're typically no less than about 82 or 83 degrees Fahrenheit. So it gets a bit warm in there when you're doing any work in there. Always want to make sure you wear a t-shirt because if you wear a sweater, you're going to be sweating way too much. (laughs) But yeah, we simulate their environment mostly through temperature. And we do very frequent water changes about once or twice a week to keep it similar to that flowing river environment that they're used to. Uh, And then in regards to their diet, They eat these very specific species of black worms. I'm not really sure where we get them from, but we keep them in these huge 10-gallon tanks in the lab. Whenever you're on fish care duty, you have to go and rinse these 10 gallons of worms with fresh water and then give them to the fish. And then the fish that are too small, that are babies that aren't really ready to eat the worms yet, we grow brine shrimp in the lab for them as well. So that's more of a microscopic shrimp that are grown also under warm, salty conditions, similar to the ocean, and then the baby fish and zebrafish that we have in the lab as well are fed those until they're old enough to receive worms as well. I think it's really cool that you're genetically determining the sex of these fish. And to everyone out there listening, we will be having Lexi on for another episode because she's going to be telling us about her other research topic. So talk to you again soon, Lexi, and thanks for being on The Sci-Files. 
Yeah, thank you so much. It was great to be here and talk to both of you about some of my research, and I can't wait to be back soon. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.